chapter 3, 1 Kings chapter 3, in the kingdom and riches, looking at wisdom from above. And uh, in the study, using uh, study for this, um, but here in 1 Kings chapter 3, we'll get there in just a moment, we'll start reading it. Not 2 Kings, 1 Kings, let's try that again. Let's read the first four verses here in 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David, until he had made an end of building his own house, and the house of the Lord, and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places, because there was no house built into the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. So when Solomon ascends to the throne, the people of Israel soon learn that he is not another David. Uh, He was a scholar. His dad was a soldier. Uh, Solomon was more interested in building buildings than he was on fighting battles. Uh, David enjoyed a simple life as a shepherd, and David had a great care over the people as a shepherd, but Solomon uh, chose to live in luxury. Uh, David and Solomon both wrote songs. Solomon is better known for his proverbs. Uh, He did write the 72nd and the 127th Psalms, uh, as well as the Song of Solomon he wrote. But you don't have any of the other 3,000 songs that he would have written. David was a shepherd who loved and served God's people. However, Solomon became a celebrity who would use people to build his extravagant lifestyle. When David died, the people mourned. When Solomon died, the people would beg his successor, King Rehoboam, his son, to lighten the burden. David was a warrior who put his trust in God. Solomon was a politician who put his trust in his authority, in his treaties, and in his own achievements. Frederick Buchner wrote, King Solomon was among the wisest fools who ever wore a crown. Solomon is mentioned nearly 300 times in the Old Testament, a dozen times in the New, and as you think about this, he's even listed in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is identified as the builder of the temple in Acts 7.47, one of the colonnades in the temple. Uh, if you remember in John 10.23, Acts 3.11 and Acts 5.12 talks about Solomon's porch. David was recognized as an ideal leader, and his record became the standard for every succeeding king. But we do not find Solomon as, a, as an example of a godly ruler in the succeeding generations. So chapters 3 and 4 here begin to describe Solomon's first three years of reign. Uh, in chapter 6, he begins to deal with him building the temple. And it describes him in several roles. <clears throat> in verse 1, we find that Solomon was a peacemaker. And Solomon made affinity with the king of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Solomon's name comes from the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom means peace. And during this reign, Solomon would have great peace in his kingdom. David had risked his life on the battlefield to defeat enemies and ultimately give the peace that Solomon would enjoy. But Solomon takes a different approach to maintaining peace. 
He uses diplomacy, much like our leaders today try to do. You know, there's a conflict, let's all sit around a table and talk about it. David would oftentimes, David, not oftentimes, but David would go to the Lord and say what to do, and God would say attack, or God would say hold off, and, and I'll, I'll defeat them. But Solomon was a man that say, well, wait, 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 wait a second, let's do some diplomacy. And one of the factors in Solomon's reign is that he would make treaties with other rulers. How? He would marry their daughters. Explains why he would have 700 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, Solomon was a man that would use marriage to these various women to to, uh, bring about peace. You know, he entered into many, many different arrangements with even the most piddly of leaders. But I want you to look with me that something about Solomon's life in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, 14. We'll come back here to uh, 1 Kings, but uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, 14, we'll read through verse 20 here. When, verse 14 of Deuteronomy 17, give you a second to get there. All right, verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, 15. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. Verse 16 of Deuteronomy 17. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. Why? To the end that he should multiply horses, for as much as the Lord has said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Verse 17. Something that Solomon grossly violated. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply him to himself silver and gold. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren." that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left to the end, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Where did Solomon's first bride come from? She was a daughter of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This is the very nation from which God would deliver the Israelites, a past enemy. Now, 
by Solomon making an alliance with the Egyptians, it indicates, obviously, that the Egyptian um, uh, prominence in the world stage has been grossly uh, uh, lowered. I mean, they've been humbled. They've slipped. And the Egyptian rulers would not ordinarily give of their daughters to another ruler of another nation. But we find something significant in 2 Chronicles. Look with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 11. So 2 Chronicles, 1-2nd Samuel, 1-2nd Kings, 1-2nd Chronicles. So in 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 11. 2 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 11. We find something that Solomon knew that he had violated the, the ordinances of the Lord. He had violated that which God had set. Because Solomon would not place his wife into the royal palace where David had lived. Why? Because it was near the Ark of the Covenant. So he housed his Egyptian wife in a different location because he did not want her as an Egyptian near to the place of worship. He violated it. In verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 8, And Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David unto the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel. Why? Because the places are holy, whereunto the ark of the Lord hath come. In his very first relationship, his very first marriage, he violates Deuteronomy 17. He does not put her, and it comes to the place that he said, I would rather have peace and compromise than I would to obey God and potentially have war. He would spend seven years building the temple of God, but 13 years building his own palace. Look in verse, let's look in 1 Kings chapter uh, 6. So this is kind of a, this study here is a study uh, of book of 1 Kings, but it's kind of uh, of the characters here as well. So 1 Kings chapter 6, uh, verse 37. Just kind of a little preview here uh, as we look at this. 1 Kings chapter 6, uh, verse 37. <clears throat> in the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month Ziph. And in the eleventh year, in the month Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof. And according to all, all the fashion of it, so was he seven years in building it. But Solomon was building his own house thirteen years, and he finished all his house. So where is he placed in the priority? He's placed in the priority upon his own palaces and his own grandeur. And one of the things that Solomon did with all of his treaties is he cuts to the very heart of Israel's unique position. He creates all these treaties with these different varying nations. But God had established them as his people. He says, let's look at Exodus chapter 33. I'm going to look at a number of passages. If you want to go to Deuteronomy 4, I'm going to read the Exodus 33 passage. Uh, Exodus 33, 16. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight. Is it not that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. What is God saying? He says, you're my people. What is Solomon doing? He's bringing everyone together in a happy union, much like you'll find in the one world ruler, but all of these people coming together in treaties. 
Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. We'll read a few here. Deuteronomy chapter 4, uh, verse 7. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I have set before you this day? Go with me to verse 32. Chapter 4, verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past which were before thee. Since the day that God created man upon the earth and asked from the one side of heaven unto the other, whether there hath been any such thing as this great thing is, or hath been heard like it. Did ever people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as thou hast heard and live? Or hath God essayed to go and take him, a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations, by signs, and by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. What is he saying? He's saying God separated you unto himself. God did incredible miracles. The ten plagues, the crossing of the Jordan River, through the desert 40 years, providing manna every day, providing quail, uh, providing deliverance from uh, the warring nations, getting them across the Jordan River, defeating one of the mightiest nations there, Jericho. God did it all, and Solomon has the audacity to make covenants and leagues with them with which God says, you're my own people. God did not make any covenants with the Gentile nations, nor had he given them his word, his sanctuary, or his holy priesthood. God would say to the Jews, I am the Lord your God who separated you from other people. Now in Leviticus, look, let's make another passage, Leviticus chapter 20. And to elaborate on this point here, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 24. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 20, verse 24. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The third book of the Bible, Genesis, or excuse me, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 24. Verse 24 of Genesis, uh, Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20, 24. But I have said unto you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess it. A land that floweth with milk and honey. To whom is God giving it to? The Jews. I am the Lord, I am the Jehovah, your Elohim, which have separated you from other people. You shall therefore put distance, difference, excuse me, between clean beasts and unclean, and between unclean fowls and clean. And you shall not make your souls abominable by beast or by fowl or by any manner of living things that creepeth on the ground, which I have separated from you as unto as unclean. Excuse me. Verse 26, and ye shall be holy unto me. For I, the Jehovah, am holy, and have severed you from other people. Why? That ye should be mine. What is God exclusively saying here? He says, Israel, you're my people. In Deuteronomy 33, 28, we would understand that God would tell them that as long as they trusted and obeyed him, the nation shall dwell in safety alone. The prophet Balaam, who was commissioned by Balak, who tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, 
and Balaam made a statement. He said the people, uh, he made a statement in Isaiah 42. Uh, this idea came out about him, but uh, <clears throat> uh, that Balaam described Israel as the people shall dwell alone and shall not be re- reckoned among the nations. That was actually there in Numbers 23.9. I read the wrong reference there. But they'll dwell alone. They're his people. He says, I will deliver you from Egypt. I will give you the promised land. I will give you what your forefathers, your patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what they were promised. So the Lord places among the Gentile nations a witness to them of the true and living God. Now I want you to look with me at Isaiah 42, 6. Isaiah chapter 42, uh, verse 6. And Israel holds a distinct place. Did God call the Israelites? Uh, because somehow he had a favor for the Israelites as a culture. Did God have a favor upon Israel? Uh, just because, you know, they were Abraham's seed. Abraham did place his faith upon God, and God reckoned it to him for righteousness. But here in Isaiah 42, 6, God has a distinct purpose for the Israelites and in their blessings to them. And it is not to just give them a beneficial land. It is not to bless them for simply of their culture. God has a purpose for their life. This actually will tie in well with our morning's message. In Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people. Look with me what he says here. For a light of the Gentile, verse 7, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. So if Israel had continued to be faithful to God and God's covenant, God would have used them as an object lesson to the pagan nations around them. They had the opportunity of a faith in God. I mean, they are the perpetuators, much like the, the, the local churches today, they're 2 Timothy 3.15, or 1 Timothy 3.15, talking about the church as the pillar and ground of the truth, the Israelites had the responsibility to continue to perpetuate the word of God, the law and the, the, the statutes of the word of God that they had, the, they were to continue that, and they did the copying of it, the scribes, and, and they would write it out word for word and just make sure the accuracy so that we could have the word of God today. But not only for the continuance or the preservation of God's word, but also to be a light to the pagan nations that there is a God in his name. And, and who is his name? Jehovah, or Lord as we see in our scriptures. But what happened was, in, instead of a dedication to God, an exclusive dedication to God as his people, what did they do? They imitated the Gentiles. They worshipped the pagan idols. They abandoned their witness for God, and they went the way of the world, much like believers today do. And so what does God have to do to them? He chastens them. He sends them to captivity in Babylon. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 28. God had a purpose for Israel to be the head of nations. Deuteronomy 28, verse 13. Deuteronomy 28, verse 13. <clears throat> uh, 
Deuteronomy 28, 13, The Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. But here's the conditions. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them, and thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. And then verse 44. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. So here's the consequences. But because of compromise, she becomes the tail. Is Israel, in our day and age, and throughout the centuries, after the captivity, ultimately to Babylon, and then succeeding generations, we're now in the times of the Gentiles, has Israel been a prominent top nation of the world? You've had other leading nations. Uh, you had England for a long time. You have had the United States. You've had China and Russia. But you have not, ha- I mean, uh, Israel has gained in prominence, but it is still not a leading nation. And Solomon's compromises, he may have thought, I'm making progress here to keep the peace. I'm making forward progress, but in fact, spiritually, he's making a regression. He's making a lot of compromise. He would enter into many lucrative trade agreements with other nations. But the price that he pays is too high. We understand as you look at the scriptures, as you look at the historical books, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, as you look at these and, and, and you look at the history of Israel throughout the scriptures, even in some of the, uh, the prophets, uh, we would find that Israel, as she trusted the Lord, she prospered. But as she began to become comfortable in her materialistic pursuits, she began to wane in her influence. God promises, if you're true to me, I'll give you all that you need. I'll protect you from your enemies. I'll bless your labors. But from the very beginning of Jewish monarchy, Israel leaders made it clear that they wanted to be like other nations. Look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. I mean, the whole reason that the monarchy of Saul and moving forward, the reason why it even started is found right here. Ultimately, it was because, if you, if you remember in his, the historical account, Samuel, the prophet, his sons had done abominably, and uh, the people were so outraged, you know, they, they didn't want Samuel ruling, they didn't want a prophet ruling anymore, and they wanted to be like the other nations. And it's, we see this here in verse 4 of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then all, the Israel's, then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah, And said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy way. Now make us a king to judge us. Why? Like all the nations. Verse 6 of 1 Samuel 8. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken in their voice. Howbeit yet protest, 
solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And then I want to read a little bit lengthier passage here in verses 11 through 20. We'll just read verses 10 through 20 for context. But it is really true of the governments today. God told them that if you reject me and reject one of my prophets as a leader of Israel, this is going to happen. And we see this exact same thing happening in any government uh, that has been since then. I mean, uh, verse 10, And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself or his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. Do we not have armies today, and they take the sons and grandsons of fathers and grandfathers? In verse 12, and he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your oliveyards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. Do we not have that today, that a government might say, we're putting a highway through your property, and we're just going to do it. We'll pay you, but here you go. We're taking your property. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. We have taxes. I wish they only took a tenth. And verse 16, and he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king which ye shall have chosen you and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So in politics today, we are oftentimes looking at the politician that will, uh, you know, put the least amount of burden upon us. They will do it in our way. And Israel rejects God. So as the, as we, in, in the modern day, as Christians reject the things of God, they're going to go towards politicians for financial security. They're going to go to politicians that will... Give them the liberty to live in the sin that they want. Because there's a rejection of the things of God. Now obviously back then in 1 Samuel's time with the prophet Samuel, they lived under a theocracy where God ruled. But then they would move to a monarchy under man's rule and it has been heartache ever since. But Israel said, we don't care of the hardships that are come. We want a man over us. We don't want God. And that's the exact same thing that happened in Exodus when Moses came down off the mountain. They said, Moses, you read the law to us. We don't want God speaking to us. Humanity, humans, we would much rather have a human speak to us than Almighty God speak to us. But the result is a lot of heartache. And Solomon married many pagan wives and began to worship their false gods, and the Lord had to chasten him. You could look at 1 Kings chapter 11 on this. We find something else in here in 1 Kings chapter 3 about Solomon, and it talked about 
until he had made an end of building his own house, and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. So the latter portion of verse 1 of 1 Kings 3, we note Solomon as a builder. I mean, he, he built the temple. His alliance with Hiram, king of Tyre, gave him access to find timber and skilled workmen, but he also built his own palace, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. It consisted of his living quarters plus the house of the forest of Lebanon where arms were stored and displayed the halls of pillars and the halls of judgment. He built a house in Jerusalem for his Egyptian princess or his wife. 2 Chronicles 8.11 Any visitors that would come in were absolutely overwhelmed at the grandeur and the beauty and the perfection of what Solomon did. And again, that fosters all the pride in his heart. Solomon wasn't a warrior, but he was concerned about the safety of his own people. He expanded and he strengthened Milo, which was a protective wall or embankment that David had begun to fill, uh, begun to build, excuse me, 2 Samuel 5, 9. Now the word Milo means filling, and uh, Solomon would have a great interest in horses and chariots. He would have captains over chariots and all those sorts of things, and he has special chariot cities, chapter 4, verse 26. Uh, we'll look there in just a moment. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Uh, there's other, a few other chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10 also discuss this. Solomon became a horse dealer. He imported horses and chariots. He sold them to other nations. And he made a good profit. His horses, some of the best in the world. He had store cities in strategic places. Israel would control several very, very important trade routes, economic trade routes. And Solomon was a man of unbelievable wealth. But these trade routes needed to be protected. Military personnel needed to be housed in these cities around these trade routes to protect their business. But as we go back to Deuteronomy 17 that we read earlier, verse 16 of Deuteronomy 17, but he shall not multiply horses to himself nor cause the people to return to Egypt. To the end that he shall multiply horses for as much as the Lord has said, he shall henceforth return no more that way. What did Solomon do? Solomon went back to Egypt. What did Egypt do? They had lots of horses and chariots to defend themselves, to go against. What is Solomon placing a preeminence on? Manpower as a defense mechanism. But God says when you're in the land, don't multiply horses to yourself. Don't trust in horses and chariots. But something else happened here. If you want to go back to Deuteronomy 17, there's another portion I want to highlight here, and this is very important. You could be saying, well, maybe he just forgot about this. Uh, maybe Solomon just didn't realize that he wasn't supposed to have horses. I mean, he has a great time of peace. Why not build the military? Why not uh, build the temple? Why not build these grandiose, wonderful, uh, you know, uh, uh, unbelievably large palaces? Why not? But in Deuteronomy 17, 18, going back to a passage we read earlier, 
And it shall be, look with me, and it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life. What was Solomon's responsibility? He was to write out personally a copy of the Bible for himself, of what texts were available at the time. He would have had the text of Moses there. He would have known the direction he was to go. He would have known, I'm not to multiply wives to myself. Can you imagine writing out the very Bible verses that are condemning your actions? Can you imagine the conscience, the guilt that is there? Let's look with me at Psalm 20, verse 7, what David would have written and Solomon would have known about. Psalm, chapter, Psalm 20, verse 7. Solomon would have read these words from his father, so all of the scriptures that were at that time, Solomon was responsible to read them, and every king thereafter was responsible to, read, to write out a copy of the word of God for themselves, that they would know it. In verse 7 of Psalm 20, Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Uh Uh-oh, Solomon's in trouble. Let's look with me at uh, Psalm 33, verse 16. Verses 16 through 19 of Psalm 33. There is no king saved by the multitude of hosts. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. Verse 17 of Psalm 33. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any by his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him. Upon them that hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. What is David saying? Now, David is off the scene. David's passed away. Solomon's reigning. Solomon, you're trusting in your own strength, you're trusting in your own might, your own wisdom. Solomon was evidencing an inward decay a division that would ultimately lead to destruction. We find in verses 2 through 15, of going back to 1 Kings 3, we'll read verses 2 through 15. Well, let's actually, first uh, 2, 3, and 4 we'll read again. Uh, I've got several subsections here that I'll read the rest of it. Verse 2 of 1 Kings 3, only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no help no house built into the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. 
we find in the very early days of Solomon, there's just a few little things that are beginning to put a crack in his faith in God. There's a little bit of indicators in Solomon's life that his actions were leading him down the wrong way. Saul, the first king, would end up committing suicide on the battlefield. Saul would start out in humility and victory, but he ended up being rejected by the Lord and ultimately in a very awful death. Solomon's beginning was it says he loved the Lord. But you can start off right for God. You can start off on fire for the Lord. But these little cracks in your life, these little compromises, little here, a little there, you know, he married an Egyptian wife. He, he began to multiply horses. He began to, you know, all of these little things that came in. And Solomon would finish up in a bad way. Your beginning does not guarantee a good end. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 8, as written by Solomon under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient of spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Let's go there, Ecclesiastes 7, 8. Let me... Ecclesiastes 7, 8. <clears throat> Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Let's go to verse 1 of Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7, 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death and the day of one's birth. You receive your name at birth, or shortly thereafter, some you know, might have your name picked out right before you're, you're, you're born, but your parents select a name for you, and that name comes with a clean slate. Now, you either enhance that name in your life, or you debase that name. Have you ever had a name, as you're going through, I know for our daughters, we were going through to pick names, and I might suggest, no, I don't want a name like that, because it reminds me of so-and-so, right? I don't want a name like that, because it, you know, and we would go back and forth. I don't want that name. No, that reminds me. You know, even if you're selecting a name for a dog. Well, I don't want that name a dog because you know that other dog, it was like that. That dog was awful. I don't want my dog named that. You know, you just, as you're selecting names, you're picking, but there's a, there's a character associated with the name. After death, you can't change a bad name into a good name or a good name into a bad name. How you live your life will determine your name. The American poet Longfellow, great is the art of beginning, but greater the art is of ending. How are you going to end your life? What will you be remembered for? Solomon, unfortunately, had a great dad. Now, did David have his faults? Absolutely. I mean, he killed... Uh, he had an affair with Bathsheba, killed her husband. He numbered Israel, which actually had, you know, there was four people that died from his uh, adulterous affair. There was 70,000 people that died from David's numbering of Israel in pride. It does show us something about pride. 
But David was still noted as a man after God's own heart. David had still humbled himself. Did David have a, a blight against his legacy? Absolutely he does. I mean, by the very fact I'm bringing that up, there's a blight, there's a, a, a mar to David's testimony. God still used him. And what God wants to do with Israel through Solomon... I have to end here shortly, but verses two through four, as I read, so David, or excuse me, God wants Israel to be consecrated unto Himself. They wanted a central place of worship there for the temple, and and it would not be. He wanted this temple to not have any resemblance to the pagan Canaanite nations. None of the high places. The temple is to be exclusively different because it's showing of Israel's consecration unto himself as his light. Who were the lights in the time of the Old Testament? The Israelites were, or they were supposed to be. When Israel would enter the pagan land, enter Canaan land, they were commissioned and demanded and uh, commanded by God to destroy the high places. Numbers 33, 52. Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures and destroy all their molten images and quite pluck down all their high places. Deuteronomy 7, 5, burn, cutting down their groves, burning their graven images with fire. Deuteronomy 7, 12, again, very uh, similar in keeping God's judgments. Uh, and then Deuteronomy 33, 29. And the end... Happy art thou, O Israel, who is likened to thee, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of thy health, and who is the sword of thy excellency, and thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. So until the temple was built, the people would worship in these high places. They'd worship the Lord there, but they were still in high places. God wanted no resemblance we don't have idols around here. We don't have these images around our church, much like you would find in some other uh, faiths and religions. We're different because we want this place to be about God. Christians are distinct. Gibeon was a sacred place for the tabernacle was located there. I'll end here, and I'll talk more about this next week. But as we deal with this, we find early on in the monarchy of Israel, that the people wanted God and they wanted the world. And when that happens, that's a recipe for disaster. You cannot have God in the world and not have increased heartache. And that is why God would want, that's why God wanted a theocracy, and someday we will have a theocracy where Jesus Christ rules and reigns during the millennial kingdom and then forever in eternity. But those little compromises we make now are much like what David did, much like what Solomon did, ultimately. Solomon had God's wisdom, as we'll hear about, that God would give him a, a wisdom far superior to any other man. And yet he squandered it for himself. What a sad epitaph of life. Solomon did some great things. 
But those first few compromises in those first few years would lead to a lot of heartache in the end. And his compromises in the beginning would split a nation. Because Rehoboam would have a wrong outlook. Because dad had a wrong outlook. If you go back from there, David had a wrong outlook. David was also a womanizer. Yes, God used him. Yes, God loved him. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart. But David ultimately, David had many wives as well. And you know what? When we fail to uphold the boundaries that God sets, we bring upon ourselves a lot of unintended consequences. You know, what we need ultimately is to live by the wisdom from above and live in understanding. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness and graciousness. Father, as we look at the life of Solomon and David and the other kings, succeeding kings here in the book of 1 Kings, uh, Father, I pray that in our life that we would not uh, make these compromises, but Father, that we would stick and hold fast uh, to your precious word. Father, that we would make a priority for you. You're an amazing God, a loving God, a caring God. Father, I pray any compromise in our lives, Lord, that you would show it to us, Lord, that we can be the light that we have been called to be, much like Israel was called, but they were removed because of sin in their lives. Father, help us as we come to the 11 o'clock hour to continue to hear from your word and to be changed and transformed into thy precious image. I love you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen.